Well, good morning to each of you. I care for you all, and I want this message to be meaningful. And um, it's very important what the Lord says here. We're still in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. And um, I'm going to focus on verses 29 and 30. Uh, Before I do, please join me in in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much for giving us your word. And Lord, we exalt your word here in this place today. Uh, You are so worthy. Um, We must take your word so seriously and rest in your word and take all of your promises to heart and Lord, help us to do that today. We go through our week and we go through each day and the enemy is bombarding us with lies and we're constantly being tried to be pulled away. And so I ask you, Lord, to help us now to remember and to rest in your word, to exalt it and let it reign in our hearts. And help me, Lord, to preach it to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the last several weeks, I've been um, focusing on this section of Scripture from Matthew 5, verses 21 through 31. And this morning, I want to focus, like I said, primarily on verses 29 and 30. And I've titled this message, Spiritual Surgery. And I hope that shines through here. But I want to read the word here from beginning in verse 21 through 30. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and remember that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. 
And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. When the previous two sermons that I preached on this uh, section of Scripture, we focused on uh, sin, how it's not merely something external, but it's down deep in the heart. And when Jesus had told them, you have heard that it was said of old time, thou shalt not murder, that wasn't wrong. That was the law. That's the law of our land. But he said it's not even if you don't do the act of murder, being angry without a cause, you're culpable of murder. We talked about how some Bible translations have removed without a cause and how that's wrong because there is times we should be angry, especially when um, God is being diminished or dishonored. We talked about how adultery isn't just the physical act of adultery, but it's in the heart that there is a, a rebelliousness in the heart to turn away from your first love of God even, the spiritual adultery that Israel committed, and how this, the sexual immorality of our day shows the lustful heart, that pornography runs rampant and, and lust, and people say they reduce the law, just as the Pharisees did, and just as we have a tendency to do, they reduce the law to say, well, I haven't done the physical act, let me check off the, the box, and I'm good to go. And basically, what Jesus has been telling them here, that how you view sin is not how God views sin. So verses 29 through 30. Many people have called these two verses or they have um, preached from these two verses and they've called it mortification of sin. And that's a good term. I'm going to call it spiritual surgery. First, we need to talk about sin and what it is. There was a lot of talk about sin already here this morning. <clears throat> Well, sin is man's biggest problem, and defined in Scripture from 1 John, it simply put lawlessness. It's disobedience to the law of God. Sin is man's biggest problem, and it can be boiled down to actually man's only problem when you think about it, because everything else, all other problems stem from sin. It is the root of all other problems. Sin is the root of all suffering and pain, all lack. It's the root of homelessness, of disease, of disorders and viruses, of famine, of drought, of all environmental issues and natural disasters. Sin is the root cause of every destructive thing, and it is the destructive force that has plagued mankind since the fall. It's the root cause of everything bad. Your emotional distress, your guilt, your 
mental uneasiness, your, your lack of peace, your anxiety. It's the source of depression. It's the source of all environmental problems. They, they talk about, and the elites talk about, fighting climate change and global warming. Well, wait till Jesus comes back. But even, even still, if sin was somehow restrained, we wouldn't have these environmental problems that exist. Sin has impacted and corrupted the three relationships of man, and there's only three. Man to God, man to nature, man to man. Man to God because sin, because of sin, man is cut off from God totally. Unable to get to God because of sin. Man is dead in trespasses and sin from his mother's womb. And sin makes us an object of God's wrath. Man to nature because Genesis 3.17 I better read this. I didn't write it down. Genesis 3.17-19 And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return to the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art and unto dust thou shalt return. So now man has to continually labor and fight against nature in order to get it, the earth to yield its fruit. Uh, we don't have to cultivate thorns and thistles. They just grow. We don't have to do any of those things. We don't have to um, shelter them from cold. or um, We don't have to do things to lure insects to eat up the garden. They just come. Nature is set against man because the, the relationship between man to nature is corrupted because of sin. Man to man, that relationship is corrupted. The natural man is selfish and does not care for the welfare of his fellow man. He seeks to dominate others and take without ceasing. Natural man hates his brother without a just cause, as Cain did to Abel. And as we see Jesus address this, like I said in Matthew 5.22, where he says, if you've ever been angry with your brother without a cause, you're culpable of murder. That's man's condition. That's the effect of sin on our race. Jesus also addressed this in Luke 6.31, the golden rule. He had to give the golden rule because we don't think that way naturally. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Therefore, sin is the disease of which causes every problem and issue. It is the disease all others stem from. 
it is the disease man has no cure for and that man has no desire to cure for that matter. And so it, it continues to manifest and grow and it continues to be something that causes suffering. If sin could somehow be restrained... And the more it is restrained, the more of Eden is restored. You cannot have blessing, you cannot have prosperity and peace where sin is left unabated and to run wild. And I think, brothers and sisters, we know while there's an uneasiness and a nervousness about our society and culture, when we look at the state of the nation and the world, that there is no blessing in prosperity where sin is left to run wild. So you and I understand that God will judge it. This was where the law came in. God gave us His law to cause a little bit of Eden to be restored. And where his law was honored and held in high esteem, there was blessing and prosperity. This is not detached from Jesus Christ, by the way. One cannot honor God's law without honoring Christ. We saw this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount where where it says there in 5.18 that Jesus is the fulfillment and the fulfiller of the law. Let's look here at Psalm 119, 97 through 104, and we'll see the effects of honoring God's law. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thou, through thy commandments, hast made me wiser than men, or sorry, wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way, that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. We see here the impact, the effects that it has when an individual honors God's law in his heart. How I love thy law, he says. It is my meditation all the day. Thou through thy commandments has made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. You want to have success over your enemies. You want to have success in anything, in a variety of things in life. And I'm not talking about materials or financial things, although those things do come into play for sure. Honor God's law. Thou through thy commandments has made me wiser than mine enemies. 
Uh, recently, I had studied a little bit of the, um, the English Civil War with Oliver Cromwell, and um, this man led an army against King Charles, and they, uh, it was a Puritan army. And he's, a con- he's somewhat of a controversial figure, but there's been a lot of lies taught about him. But this man led an army and never lost a battle. And they put King Charles on trial, not like in the French Revolution where they just went in, stormed the gates, and beheaded the king. But they put King Charles on, on trial for violating Magna Carta. But this army never lost a battle. And what Oliver Cromwell demanded from his soldiers was that there was no lewd talking in the ranks. There was an honoring of God's word. There was a, a certain way you had to carry yourself as a soldier. You had to praise God. And they never lost a battle. And I had to think of that when, I, when he says here, that thy commandments have made me wiser than mine enemies. Honoring God's word makes us wise. I have more understanding than my teachers, he says in verse 39. For thy testimonies are my meditation. He says he has more understanding than these teachers because he meditates on the teachings of God, not on the teachings of man. He meditates on that, on the testimonies of his God. And so he has more understanding. I think, well, let me back up here. I, have, I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. Not only does he meditate on them, and not only does he reverence them and honor them in his heart, but he keeps them. He goes forth and acts on his faith. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. He has been taught by the Lord. God is his teacher. The word is his constant subject, if you will. How sweet are they. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. How he holds the word of God in such high regard. So satisfying is the word to him. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. We're going to get into that a little bit more later, but understanding God's precepts and a love for God's word, for God's law, causes us to hate lies, causes us to hate sin. I think this from verse 102 here, I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me it's perhaps what is meant by in 1 John one twenty seven, where he says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. It's not that having teachers is necessarily bad, but God is the ultimate teacher. You ought not to rely on preachers and teachers to feed you the Word of God. You ought to rely... On the word itself. 
and this also in the context of 1 John chapter 1. This is how you determine false teachers. This makes you able to determine the false teachers from the true teachers because they also have the same anointing of the Holy Spirit. You ought to be able to discern that is a false teaching because you have the same anointing you are also you have also made the word of god your subject of life it is always at the forefront of your mind it is sweeter to you than honey it is the source of wisdom and so honoring of the law does restrain sin when a nation exalts it that nation is blessed a nation can call themselves Christian all they want to. But if they don't exalt the law of God, they're not going to be blessed. A nation can call themselves a follower of, of Jesus and they can, they can go up to the Capitol and the Congress and they can have prayers and in Jesus' name all they want to. But if they fail to honor God's law, if they fail to hold His word in the forefront, then it doesn't matter. Because that's the same thing the Pharisees were doing that Jesus was tearing down. Oh, we're of God. You know, we, we do these things. But they weren't. So honoring the law does restrain sin. But as we know, the giving of the law is not God's final play to deal with sin. It's not the ultimate device that can destroy sin, by no means. The law only restrains sin, and when only used as an external apparatus, it's very limited even in that. In order to completely return us to Eden, to fully redeem us from the curse of sin, sin must not be merely restrained, it has to be destroyed. It has to be utterly and totally destroyed in your life, in my life, in the world. How can we do that? By the deeds of the law? No, no flesh is justified that way. The only force strong enough to utterly destroy sin is Jesus Christ. And that is Christ in you. And so this brings us to the issue at hand from verses 29 through 30. Crucifying the flesh or spiritual surgery. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now some might say, as Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, that they take this to mean that the source of sin is my bodily members. That if I were to get rid of my eyes, then I would not lust. 
or if I was to get rid of my hands or physically mutilate my body, then I'd be somehow free from sin. We know that this is not true. Like I had said last time, if you cut your right hand off because it caused you to sin, your left hand's going to start working overtime. <clears throat> so that view misses the point entirely because this continues to make the whole issue of sin external. Now, we cannot disregard that concept totally because there are physical things in the material world that one needs to get rid of to abate sin. There are things that you must get rid of that must be removed and cut off or cut out of a person's life in order to refrain from sin. That's true. Like I said, some of us don't need smartphones. Some of us can't handle it. Some of us need to get rid of the TV. But that's not the main thrust of what Jesus is teaching here. Taking verses 21 all the way to 30, the context is spiritual. Jesus is teaching that sin is deeply rooted in the heart, and it must be rooted out of the heart. You must have such an hatred of sin and love of holiness that you would be willing to give up your most cherished possession in order to destroy the sin in your life. That you would rather lose your eyes than lose Christ. You must be willing to lay your Isaac down, just as Abraham did on Mount Moriah. If that's what God desired, that's what we must do. We must be willing. We must view sin as our enemy and give no allegiance to it. You think of all the suffering and pain that's in the world today. You think of the starving people. You think of the homelessness. Go down to Nashville with me sometimes. You'll see a homeless problem, a big one. You think of all the, the hatred that's out there. Think of everything that is just wicked and it's all boiled down to sin. And how can we, as children of the living God, have any allegiance to sin? How can we play games with it, justify it in any way? If we have empathy for the people, for the unbelievers that are suffering and toiling in sin and despair, and yet we're playing games with it. So Jesus says, you'd be better off to go to heaven mutilated than to go to hell with your body fully intact. This is a spiritual concept, a spiritual surgery. The problem of sin is so severe that we can not only deal with it on an external basis, we must attack the disease at its core. 
So first, in order to truly grasp the severity of the problem of sin, we must realize the nature of sin and the utter condemnation that it brings. We live in an age truly of antinomianism where there is this idea in mainstream Christianity that God's not going to punish sin. That God is just a loving God and He will sweep it under the rug and we must realize the utter condemnation that sin brings. We must realize that although there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, sin can bring devastation in your life. Sin can bring destruction, and I have seen it bring so much destruction in people around me, in my family members, and in myself. All across the theological spectrum, from antinomianism to the teaching of Christian perfectionism, that's a broad array. That's one end of the spectrum to the other. These teachings, equally false, they arise because of a failure to understand sin's nature. That sin is not only a power which breeds in the heart and can lead man to do some heinous, wicked acts. But sin is also a pollution that has corrupted the heart, even though the man may not have done the heinous and wicked act, he still has the corrupted heart. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we must make a distinction between sin and sins. We must see it as the power that leads to the actions, but also that exists apart from the actions. Sin is a corrupted force that not only leads to committing atrocities, to committing murders, to committing adulteries, to committing perverse acts. I mean, we know all about the things that go on in the world. I mean, we have child abusers, child rapists, all these things, and sin is the power behind all that. But sin also is a corrupted force that eschews our perspective. We have a tendency to make excuses for ourselves because our perspective is eschewed because of sin that's in our heart. And I deal with that oftentimes talking to these young people. Because they want to they come at you, when, when you start talking about sin, they want to oppose you by justifying sin, making excuses for it. This is because the perspective is wrong. Because sin has polluted the heart. One of the things that Jesus has been addressing here on the Sermon on the Mount is what the Pharisees were guilty of, and if we're not careful, we can be guilty of too, is externalizing, moralizing, and categorizing sin. Jesus was effectively telling them, as I said earlier, 
that sin is not to you what it is to God. It's far greater of an offense to God. I like the term cosmic treason. That's what it is. It's, and me, people may say, well, I don't have any allegiance to, to, the king, to King Jesus. It doesn't matter. He's the king. And you commit cosmic treason in your sin. You have to realize this is how God views the sinner. You have to realize that God reaches out in love and grace with the gospel. But he views the sinner as a rebel, as someone who's deserving of death, of condemnation. Someone who has earned their wages of death. That's how God views sinners. Also, our, our modern evangelical Christian churches are teaching this thing, a heresy that says sin is detached from the sinner. It's not. God says He's going to destroy the sinner along with the sin. It's not detached. They're there together. This is the essence of sin, that apart from Christ, sin is not something you just do. It's who, you're all, who you are. Your entire identity is wrapped up in sin. Everything you do, everything you consume, everything one thinks about is sinful. That doesn't mean that there's nothing good, as is to say you're not as bad as you could be. But that's called bad people doing good things. But sin is a, a total corruptive force. Now, this teaching and all of his teachings, Jesus has the cross in front of him. Understand that. Think about this. He's teaching on sin, what it is and how it's corrupted the heart and the, the, the true sickness that it is. And through his entire ministry, everything he's dealt with, te- uh, preaching about sin, healing the blind and the deaf, dealing with the pain and suffering, the main issue is sin all the time. And he has the cross in front of him all the time. So as he's moving through his life and his ministry, all roads lead to the cross. So he has the best understanding of sin anybody could have. Because he has the cross in front of him. He knows the cost of sin. That's his only end. That's his only destination is the cross. He knows that he has to deal with it. He's the only one. And he's not dealing with his own sin. He had none. He's dealing with our sin. There is something I want to touch on real quick from Isaiah 53. 
Isaiah 53, it's been said that this was written some 740 years before Christ, but it's been said that it's as if the author wrote it at the foot of the cross. But I want to point out something. Isaiah 53, if you notice, although it's prophetic, looking ahead to the cross, all the verbs are in the past tense. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions, past tense. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. It's in the past tense because this is not only prophetic looking ahead to the cross, but it's also looking back because the Jews are going to make a confession. They're going to realize we were wrong. And they're going to say, wait a minute. We thought he was being crucified for his own sins, but no, he was, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. They're going to make this tragic confession that we were wrong. We missed it. How did we miss it? Going back to verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. We esteemed him as a criminal. But this whole time, it was for our sins. We looked at him as he deserved that. In their pompous self-righteousness, didn't they? There's people today that do that. But every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. And they're going to look back and say, that's why the verbs are in the past tense. They're going to look back and say, he wasn't bruised for his own sin. It was for ours. So he had the cross in front of him. We need to have the cross in front of us on the road to crucifying the flesh. In order for us to begin to crucify the flesh, God must first do spiritual surgery. He must fix the root rot and cause the external leaves to become tender and green again. This is why when the call to repentance is given, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It doesn't stop there. When the call to repentance is given, it's not only a call to run away from sin, to flee Sodom and run to the mountain, he says. You're not just to flee from sin, but you have to run to Jesus. Because you can run away from sin, but it's going to catch up to you again. Run to Jesus. Repent ye and believe the gospel. That's what he says in Mark 1.15. Because you need someone stronger than sin. You need a power greater than the power of sin. You need a Savior, and He's the only one. Let's look at some verses concerning spiritual surgery. Romans 6, 5 through 6. 
For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. This is obviously we're not physically crucified. We're living and breathing in the here and now. This is a spiritual surgery. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified. This old man is the sinful heart. It's the old nature. The old desires to, to go out and fornicate and play the harlot and do all these things that are against God. The body of sin, I believe, is spoken of is sins we've committed in the flesh or that we struggle with. We no longer serve sin because God has performed the spiritual surgery. Cut out and remove the old man. So that means we're now free from the desire to sin and freed from the works of sin, meaning we are free to let go of sin and crucify it daily. You know, the unbeliever is not free to do that. The unbeliever is a slave to sin. And although they suffer the consequences of sin continually, they can't get away from it. And yet they still love it. You know, sin makes you stupid. It's unreasonable. It's unrational. Sometimes, I've often wondered, you know, when I see my children doing something, well, they know this is going to cause them, you know, they're going to get in trouble for this. Why are they doing that? Because sin makes you stupid. It's unrational. And then I had to think, man, that was me. That was me. Like, why, 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 would, why would you do this? You see what's happening here. We see that an, an, a detachment from God's Word is leading our whole world into destruction. But they won't do anything about it. Instead, it, it, it's accelerating. So they're not freed from the desire of sin, but we are freed from the desire of sin. We're free to let it go. And I'm telling you today, let it go. Let sin go. And cling to Christ. Because you cannot take the hand of sin and Christ simultaneously. You can't serve two masters. Colossians 2, 10 through 11. And ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We see here that the covenant of circumcision is brought up to illustrate the spiritual surgery we're talking about here. The covenant of circumcision God made with Abraham was a picture of the work that was going to be completed by Christ. 
Notice it's a circumcision made without hands. It's spiritual surgery. And this spiritual circumcision is not exclusive in the New Testament. The concept is scattered throughout the Old Testament. One example is Deuteronomy 10.16 where the Lord says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. God has always desired genuineness from His people. Not categorizing, moralizing, and checking off the boxes, and then going right back to, well, what can I get away with? Let me, let me just, like a lawyer, you study the Word, not to, not to exalt it and to love God, but you study it so that you see what you can get away with. Circumcise your heart, he says. Colossians 3, 5. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil, concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These things are the things to be cut off. Not the hands and feet and eyes. These are the things to be cut off. The next thing we must realize is the importance of eternity and of the soul and how it trumps this present life. The Lord says, It is better for one of your bodily members to perish than for the whole to be cast into hell. Because you can go through this life and have it all. But what profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So he says it's better for you to temporarily suffer than to be cast into hell for all eternity. You know, sometimes it's a suffering to cut out sin of your life. It's hard. It's a work. Faith without works is dead. It's a work we have to do. And it is a suffering sometimes. It's not just fun and games to be a Christian, although we have a lot of joy in the Lord. We have a lot of joy in rejoicing with each other, with the experience of community and worship of God. The benefits far outweigh the, the loss. But there is a loss, and it is sin. You've got to cut it out and let it go. As hard as it is, as painful as it is, We must realize eternity, eternity is more important and the condition of our soul is more important. Let's look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. And we're going to, come, we're going to look at this again before I close. I've got to hurry up. But Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. I always have a hard time finding Hebrews for some reason. All right, there we go. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against him, lest ye be wearied and faint in your own in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. So there it is. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which doth so easily beset us. It's always there lurking, seeking to come in, and it, it, it easily just comes in and let's lay it aside, he says, and run our race with patience. And it's as I said, with, with our cross before us, but he says it like this, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. And that, that entails a reliance on Jesus, the one that's stronger than sin. But that's, that's real, that's practical. I know people say that, like, well, you know, I can't do this, I just got to rely on God to, to help me with my sin. But really do it. How do you do that, practically? You go back to Psalm 119, and meditate on the Word of God, meditate on His law, make that your subject, make that your life's um, purpose, make that your life's subject. Confess your sins to one another if you have to. Get somebody to help you. Pray. Really rely on Jesus. And because your desires are already changed as a, as a believer then God will finish it. And then he says that just in case, you know, you get weak or weary from battling sin, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against him, himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Verse 4, because ye have not yet resisted unto blood against sin. You haven't gone as far as Christ. None of us have. Mortifying sin and crucifying the flesh is always active in the Christian's life. You see, we love our flesh. We never forget to feed it. We wash it. We clean it up. We desire to dress it in fine apparel. We take care of it. We cherish it, keep it warm. We fight to keep it comfortable. And while there is a sense of principle to take care of the body, which is found in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, which says, Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy, Gro the Holy Ghost, which is in you? which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So there is a sense, a principle here, that, hey, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Take care of it. But that does not mean to indulge the flesh. In fact, he speaks against that. 
Indulging the flesh is harmful to the body also, and is contrary to walking in the Spirit. It is better, far better, to feed the Spirit with Christ and have rest than to indulge the flesh and allow sin to take us down. Because sin wears you out. You can't rest in sin. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your soul, he says. My burden is, or my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Sin wears, it wears down, it wears you out. Because the Bible says they, they don't even sleep unless they've done their evil. They weary themselves. Remember in, uh, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, when the two angels were there in Lot's house, and the people found out they were there, and the whole city was given over to homosexuality. And they all came beating down on the door. And Lot, he tries to give him his two daughters because I guess he thought that um, giving them people would be better than to give them the angels of God. I don't know. But the angels come out and they strike the whole city stone blind. And then what do they do? Do they go home? No, it says they wearied themselves grasping at the door, still trying to get at them. That's the kind of force sin is. It wears you out. So it's far better to rest in Christ, to indulge the flesh, and allow sin to take us down. The the pleasures of the flesh are so temporary and fleeting, but the spiritual treasures of Christ are eternal. Far better for us to feed the Spirit with Christ and by doing so, starve out the flesh. You are what you eat, right? Thomas Watson said, What fools are they who for a drop of pleasure drink an ocean of wrath? The Lord is making it clear in verses 29 through 30 that our eternity and the condition of our soul must be our highest priority above all else, as well as the condition of the souls of the people around us. We must examine the whole of our life and see to it that this is always in the forefront of our considerations, our eternity and the condition of our soul. We must realize that the most important thing we have to do in this life is to prepare ourselves for eternity. That's the process of sanctification. That's seeking holiness. The Christian is one who is continually doing that. Not making excuses for sin. Not trying to figure out what they can get away with. That's the path to heaven, the path to be in the presence of Christ. It's a path of sanctification, of seeking holiness, without which no man shall see God. Next, and finally, we must have a burning 
hatred for sin that fuels our desire to destroy it in our own lives and to call it out where it is. We must have a heightened sensitivity to even the small traces of sin because of how evil it is. And this is hard sometimes. Sometimes I feel like I see sin everywhere. The Lord causes me to just see sin everywhere. Psalm 97.10 says, Ye that love the Lord hate evil. A well-equipped and prepared soldier knows his enemy and must study sin. We must study sin and understand its workings and anticipate its moves. The Puritans used to analyze sin in order to expose it. And they were mocked. And they were called specialists in sin. But that is the way to mortify sin that leads to holiness. We must have this hatred of sin as a sin detector that is primarily used to fight our own sin that creeps and lurks about within us. And only then can we use that to point out the sin in others around us. Remember Jesus said, you know, how are you going to come to your brother about his speck when you got a log, a big timber sticking out of your eye? So I'm calling on us all here to take up this exhortation of Matthew 29:30 and from Hebrews 12, 1 through 4 to lay aside the sin that so easily besets us. Whatever that is for you, examine, prepare, and fight. Fight! Cut out and cut off sin. This, dear brothers and sisters, is pleasing to the Lord. It's what He desires for His people more than anything, His holiness. Well, may the Lord go with you in this battle. Go with us all. God bless you. Thank you for listening.